Well, praise God this morning. It's good to be in His presence and to worship Him, to know His presence. It's such a privilege to be able to come into His presence and to even to know the things. You know, we sing these beautiful songs. A lot of them have been written lately just about how lovely He is, you know, how holy He is. And it's such a privilege to even understand that. When you think sometimes, you know, I travel to different countries and different places and you just see all of these millions and millions of people who just don't know that. They don't have the privilege of knowing that. And, you know, we pray God has mercy on them that they can come into that place of knowing knowing Him and His presence. And it's been nice to just study, do our study on Elijah and Elisha and see, you know, what God did in their lives, but how He's speaking to us and what He wants to do in the last days. And I'm excited to just, you know... I realize the last days is not going to be an easy time, but it's going to be a, an exciting time for the people of God and what he's going to do. And we're going to be making a transition in this message to Elisha. And what's wonderful about Elisha is he represents the church. Someone who got, God has done a work of glory in, of power, of might. And and so, you know, he's when we look at Elisha's life, it really speaks of God. This is what you're going to do in me. This is what you're going to do in the church. You're going to empower us to do mighty things for you to walk in your way. And so, you know, let's look this morning at that thought of Elijah and Elisha. And we've been looking at the master, Elijah, right, in his meeting with God on Mount Sinai where he's recommissioned and he's anointed. Or he, he God still has a, a purpose for him as he's recommissioned. He's, he's to go out and anoint kings. That's quite something for God to say as, as he's about to say, I'm finished. I can't go on. There's, there's, what good is it to go on? And God says, well, I have a few things for you to do. I want you to anoint kings over nations. Oh, okay. I still want you to have an impact. You can still have an impact, Elijah, on kings, nations. And also on someone else you're going to raise up who's going to take your place. And, you know, and so he is anointed or he's, God is using him to anoint kings to have an impartation to influential people who, who will then influence their nation. And that kind of flows with scripture. There's a proverb that in, uh, we can read in Proverbs 22 and verse 29. It says, do you see a man diligent in his business? He will stand before kings. He won't stand before, you know, unimportant people. And so, God has used his people who are faithful and diligent to do his will, to influence the kings of the earth. And we can see this in scripture in several places. And we think about, of course, Joseph, right? He ministered to Pharaoh. He was second under Pharaoh. He basically had charge of the land except in the things that Pharaoh wanted to do in the land. And he, you know, he, of course, he had a huge part to play in preserving God's people. Also, Daniel, the prophet, ministered to many kings in Babylon and in Persia and was probably instrumental, had a, or at least had a big part in, in influencing Cyrus, perhaps even showing him, oh, oh Cyrus, your name was prophesied in, in, by, a lot, by the prophet Isaiah. Your name was even written in the prophecy. And it says you were going to release Israel to go and rebuild Jerusalem and well, what a privilege Daniel had to, to take part in that, but it, because he was diligent, 
right? We, in the beginning of his life as a young man to do the will of God. And because of that faithfulness to do the will of God, he had a part to play. He had an impartation in, in kings, in the lives of kings and in nations. But of course, there are a limited number of kings in the earth, especially today. There's, not, there's only a handful of kings left, you could say. Of course, there's leaders and, and so forth. But, you know, we can't all be associated with them, but yet this promise applies to those who are faithful. But, you know, I think that there's an even greater truth with natural kings or rulers that um, Christians might have a, the a privilege of influencing is that God is looking to raise up kings and priests for him throughout the earth. And so there's an aspect of that plan of God for our lives is he wants us to influence others to be kings and priests throughout all the earth. He wants us to take part in the anointing and the raising up of those kings and priests. And what does that require? Diligence to do his will, to continue in the pathway of righteousness, to do what he says when his still small voice is speaking to us. You know, he can speak to us as he did to Elijah, who was a bit discouraged and say, Elijah, I still have a purpose. I want you to anoint kings in the earth. And that's what God can say to us as well. You know, God wanted also, besides those kings, he, he wanted Elijah to raise up Elisha. He had a son that he wanted him to raise up that he can impart his, his life and his mantle into someone else who would go on and even do more than he did to do greater things. But doesn't that remind us of something that Christ said? Right? He said, I'm going to go to my Father, and I'm happy. I'm pleased to do that, because then I'm going to send my Spirit back, and greater things shall you do. So in a sense, Elijah represents Christ. He's going to stand before the Lord of the whole earth before eternity. And we are the Elisha, the church of Christ who goes on to do greater things and in the sense that the church in the last days God is going to use to do glorious things throughout all the earth to be a witness of his glory throughout the whole earth then as the Lord said in Matthew 24 then the end will come but God needs a glorious church he needs Elisha's who are going to go out under the anointing and mantle of the master and so we have that calling we we actually we have that calling as well of Elijah to be those who reproduce themselves in others, to be fathers and mothers. You know, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul didn't just teach them and leave good doctrine. He, he put a spirit in them. He imparted his spirit of faithfulness, of love for God, of zeal, of fervency. You know, we've been studying in the book of Acts about how, you know, in the beginning, Paul was zealous, very zealous for the wrong things. But, you know, when God got a hold of his heart, that zeal didn't go away. It just got applied to the right things. And he was just as zealous he was in the beginning for the wrong things. He was zealous for, for the right things. And he imparted that into his churches so that they were zealous for the ways of God. And, you know, the Lord wants to raise up people who can impart a zeal for following God, a love for following his ways. And so a teacher can instruct and point the way, 
but a father and mother reproduces Christ in other people. Of course, the meaning is we have to have Christ in us. We've got to have the goods if we're going to give the goods to other people. You know, I may have told this story, um, but it bears repeating. It's, it it kind of left an impact on me. I was up at Waverly for something. I don't know what. Maybe a convention or a camp or something. But I was just out in the dining hall, and Pastor Bailey walked out of his apartment and kind of came up to me, and he, and he said, you might be interested in something the Lord spoke to me. And, of course, I, my ears perked up, and I said, well, yes, please. I'd like to hear what, what the Lord spoke to you. And, and he said, the Lord was speaking that there, there's something greater than being a teacher of righteousness. And of course, for us, you know, I mean, our, our emphasis is we want to teach all nations the truths of Christ. We, we're called to be teachers, you know, in, in that sense, is that that's the general call of everyone. We're, we're going to be teaching whether we like it or not. We're teaching through our lives and examples. But, and so I was wondering, how can that be? What's greater than a teacher of righteousness? And, and he continued, so the Lord said, what's greater is to be a tree of righteousness, to be planted in the truths, right? Because a teacher can point the way, kind of like a signpost, but not go there himself. But a tree is firmly planted in that truth, and it bears the fruit of that truth. Now, we're not minimizing, of course, as I was saying, being teachers of righteousness. That's kind of like a step on the way. Right? We become teachers of righteousness, and it's only as you begin to teach something that you really get to learn it. You know, I didn't really know the book of Acts as good as until I started teaching it and really having to learn it and get it into you know. And so you teach that, but then God plants that and it produces fruit in your lives so that we will, we will become a tree of righteousness. It's as Jesus said, we, we do his commandments and we teach others to do them. Those are the ones who are the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so the essence is, is that we have to live our message, and have to, our lives have to be firmly rooted in that message. That's where we receive our life and our flow from the Spirit of God, and that's what we will reproduce in the lives of others. And so you know, God was calling Elijah to reproduce the work and mantle of his, of his life into his servant, Elisha. And I'm so grateful for uh, my teachers. And, you know, each of us has probably been imparted and impacted by some of the leadership in our fellowship, you know, Zion Fellowship. And, you know, we, did, we weren't just taught. Something was imparted into our spirits that strengthened us, that encouraged us, that gave us a vision to go on. And so God's calling us to do the same, the same things. And so Elisha received the mantle, received the impartation so that he could go on and preserve God's people through difficult times. As you look in Israel's history, they, they had some difficult times under some wicked kings. But Elisha was there to preserve his people. And that has some profound implications when you're thinking of the the end times doctrine and so forth, right? Because we're looking for a new generation to come up that God's going to use, you know, who uh, are going to be used to 
to spread the gospel throughout all the world and the nations and so forth. But, you know, when you look at the, the generation coming up right now, it's a little discouraging because there's not many that are hungry for the ways of God that are desiring. There's a lot of apathy and so forth. But we can know and believe that from among them are going to be Elisha's and John the Baptist's and Daniel's and Joseph's and so forth. Those who are going to be used to impact kings and priests throughout all the earth. They'll become kings and priests and reproduce that and so forth. But that generation needs fathers and mothers. Needs those who will be faithful to do the will of God. Trees of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he would be glorified in their lives. And so we want to make that our prayer. Lord, don't just let me be a teacher, one who would say and not do, but Lord, let me be a teacher of, or a, a tree of righteousness to be planted in your truth and in your ways. Now, let's, I want to make that transition now. We've looked for the last, I was counting them up, the last 10 lessons on Elijah. Now we're going to Elisha. That's hard. We think that's hard. Try it in Spanish because <laughs> the, wor- the, the words are like so similar. And they always like, wait, who, was, who are you talking about? Elisha, Elijah to Elisha. Um, because even though Elijah's still on the earth, the focus is shifting now. Not as much on the master, but on the pupil for what God's going to do in his life. And the meaning of his name is, is actually quite significant. It's a contraction made up of two parts. It's from the word El, meaning God, and the verb, I'll try to get this right, Yasha, meaning to be saved. And so it's that kind of brings that thought that God is Savior. My God is Savior. And so I'm, I'm sure Elisha was very appreciative of that, uh, that name, that meaning, and the call upon his life. That, because his, his ministry actually spanned a succession of very wicked kings, and it lasted almost 50 years of him ministering under these, these wicked kings. And it, remember, he's a, he was in Israel now, not Judah. Judah had some, a few good ones, you know, had Jehoshaphat and so forth. But in Israel, they were stuck with Ahab and his seed, and even Jehu who came and destroyed the seed of Ahab, he wasn't a whole lot better. He didn't serve Baal, but he still didn't serve God. And so they went through some difficult years, but it was during that time that he was a prophet and he was able to almost shepherd the people of God. And, you know, he performed many miracles of preservation and salvation on behalf of Israel. And so he, he kind of displayed that name, God is Savior. And in the last days... We are also going to see times of great wickedness and darkness. And, you know, the people are going to be questioning, where is the Lord God? Well, they need Elishas who can proclaim God is Savior. And through their very lives, they can proclaim that message and proclaim his power. Now, one of the first things we see about Elisha, let's look in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 19. And Elijah departs from the mountain of God, and it says, He departed from thence, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him 
and he cast his mantle over him. So what we're going to see in the next few verses are some indications of some of the truths that had been worked into Elisha's life, the pupil's life, in order to prepare him to be used by God. And one of the things we notice is he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Twelve With 12 yoke of oxen, you could probably get a lot done. You could really dig the plow in. And so, you know, he was being fruitful and working to plow the fields and, and so forth. The, the number 12 is actually quite significant in Scripture. Right? It's familiar to us because we see it all over. We see there were 12 sons of Jacob, right? And there were 12 tribes of Israel, um, 12 disciples. And each of those kind of speaks of, of governance or authority. And so he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, which speaks to us of 12. You know, just like the disciples, they submitted to Christ. They followed him. They obeyed him, and then they became the authority over the church. And Christ promised they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennium. And so there's that thought of, of rulership, of governance. And then the New Jerusalem has 12 gates in that city. And it, those uh, gates, the description of that made out of pearl and so, more, so forth, can speak about those who qualify to dwell in that city. And so Elisha was a man who knew the governance of the Lord. You could say the submission to the will of God to his parents. And this is really one of the greatest keys to ministry. Now, when I say ministry, I mean fruitful ministry. There's many people out there ministering, but not under governance. Uh, And it doesn't tend to be that fruitful. But fruit comes from being fully submitted to the will of God, to the governance of God. And now there's, there's kind of two spectrums that we see in Scripture. The first one is like the book of Judges. Do you remember how the book of Judges ended? I mean, it was kind of a downer ending, right? <laughs> it said, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, whew. Lord, bring us back up. <laughs> Let's go on. Right? But that, that is the nature of man. Everyone does whatever they think is best. That's what we fall back on anyway. All right? So that's one spectrum. That's one end of the spectrum. Well, the other end is Christ. Father, I've come only to do your will. Not my will, but your will be done. He was fully submitted, even though he was God. He was fully submitted to the will of his father, God. And, you know, so often we're somewhere in the middle, aren't we? (laughs) Where we are on the spectrum, sometimes we have to ask the Lord or sometimes we know it and like, Lord, I'm struggling here with your will. Get me over here. I want to be closer to you. That's really, in, in fact, I, I think that's one of our greatest struggles, right? Goal in our life is to come as close as possible to the position of Christ. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. But I think that there is an ultimate place that we can come to. It's Actually, it's the place of rest. We can come into the rest of being on that end of the spectrum of, Lord, thank you that you brought me to that place. Lord, I'm surrendering my will. And it brings such rest, but it also brings fruit. It also brings joy 
peace, righteousness, that God can work through us. And just as Elisha was plowing his fields and he was being fruitful and faithful to do that, as he submitted to the authority of his parents and and the Lord, he was about to become very fruitful, not in the natural, but in the spiritual. You know, I was thinking of one of the instances in the Gospels that caused Christ to marvel. If you think about it, there were a few times when he marveled. He was it said he was amazed. He was in awe. What would cause the Son of God to be amazed? It had to be something pretty big, right, for, for God to be amazed because he knows everything. He's seen it all before, but he was amazed. And so there was a story where he received a message from a Gentile. And he wasn't just a Gentile. He's a Roman, a centurion, no less. And he, the message was simply, please come and heal my servant. So Jesus, in his graciousness, he, he, he loved to heal. And so he said, I'll come. But before he arrived, he received another message. And the centurion said, please don't come. Well, wait a minute. You wanted me to come, but now you don't want me to come. But then in the message, he said, you only have to speak the word, and I believe you can heal my servant. But then let's look what he said in in Luke 7 and verse 8. For I also am a man under authority. I am a man under authority. Having under me soldiers, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so that key phrase, I am a man under authority. He knew what it was like to be subject to the will of another and to prosper in that and then to lead others in that way. Then verse 9, Luke 7, 9 says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. He was amazed. Now that's not even just the the kind of well ema- amazing part, but he then he turned about and he said to those following him, "I say, I have not found faith like this, not in Israel." He had been looking in Israel and ministering and healing and working and preaching and teaching, trying to cultivate faith, and here he goes to this Roman centurion and he proclaims, "That's the greatest faith I've ever seen." It's, I haven't seen anything like that in my nation. He marveled. But what was this man's faith based on? It was that he was a man under authority. And so this speaks so clearly to us that our faith will develop, it will thrive, it will flourish when we submit ourselves to the, the authority of Christ. And this happens two ways. Well, there's also... There's, you know, we understand there's natural authority. For Elisha, he had to definitely submit to his parents, and he wanted to go say goodbye to them, to go and kiss them goodbye, and he wanted to honor them before he left. And, you know, for us, God uses our natural th- authorities to cover us, to protect us, sometimes to work in us, because he doesn't promise that he's going to give us perfect authority. Right? Sometimes we're in jobs, and our authority is not as upright as we would like to imagine, but yet we still have to submit to him and trust the Lord. And then sometimes we have good authority and it's wonderful when we have godly authority, but you know, even godly authority, they don't always tell us like what we want to hear. 
they'll give us the word of the Lord. But sometimes we don't want to hear the word of the Lord. It's not the, the message we were desiring. But, but, you know, as we submit to that, there's fruit. You know, we want to make sure we're under the, the covering or the mantle, the authority that God has given to us in the natural. But, you know, that carries over into the spirit. And this is where it really, because ultimately, it's all about being under the authority of the Spirit of God, of His guidance, of His grace, of His leading, of His peace, of His conviction. You know, we have to pay attention to the yes and to the no of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we will be those under authority. Now, what what does it take to come to that place of authority or of governance being under authority? You could say where we're under Christ. Well, let's look in verse 21 of first Kings 19, first Kings 19, 21. And we're going to see that it takes consecration. And it says he turned back from him and took that yoke of oxen and he slew them He boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate and he arose and he went after Elijah and he ministered unto them, unto him. So when Elisha received the call, before he made it, before he followed that and entered into that call, he made a sacrifice. Now he didn't just want to have a a celebration, like let's have a barbecue before I, before I go on to the mission field or something like that and you know, have a good good feast for my my workers here. We think about it. That was an expensive barbecue. He he slew some oxen, and when you think about that, you know we have a a farmer in our midst. You used to be a farmer. I mean, if you if you slew a couple of cows, that'd be several thousand dollars. I mean, depending on their value, if they were really valuable, that could be up to ten thousand dollars. I mean, you know, they can get expensive. I don't know the value of oxen back in the day, but they weren't cheap. And so he slew those oxen. And so it was a a significant sacrifice that he made. But when you think about it, what was, what's the purpose of a sacrifice? The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hill. He said he doesn't need that. You know, he's not looking for, for a barbecue from us. He's got way better food in heaven. But what is it? It's really a declaration that what you're seeking after, that what God is calling us to do is worth doing. It's valuable. Lord, I value what you're calling me to do. So I make a sacrifice. You know, sometimes I just think about how our our schools operate in many different nations and some of them are quite poor and Sometimes they can barely afford a, you know, any price that, you know, a price that would seem very small and insignificant to us. Uh, But we have found that when we offer our training programs and books, that if we make the price free, they don't really value it as much. There's not that sense of, oh, this is precious. In fact, I heard a story someone shared of how it was a certain country where a, a pastor from our fellowship went there and some person came out and they, they dusted off a book that someone had given them years ago. And it was the journey of Israel. 
and someone had gone there just kind of ministering and handing out books and so forth. And I think they gave it for free. I don't think this guy paid for it. And the, and the pastor said, oh, yeah, I received this years ago. He had never opened it. It had been sitting on his shelf for years. He never even opened it. Well, he didn't really place much value on that, did he? He didn't want to give it away, but he didn't, he didn't use it either. And so, you know, we found that we, pay, we set a small price. And when they pay that price, they value it. It's like, ooh, I paid for this. I don't want to, I want to use it. It's worth something. But it causes us to value what we receive. And so sometimes God will require of us an act of obedience, an act of doing his will, of, of submitting to him in order to follow him because you know what it does? It causes us to invest ourselves. Lord, I've invested myself in doing your will. Here's a sacrifice. I'm willing to follow you and give this thing to you. And it, our, it ties our heart to him. There's a story of a famous missionary named C.T. Studd. And he, he was a missionary to, to China and then Africa. And the story goes is he was a part of a very wealthy family, right? He, I mean, very wealthy back in the day. And he, he had a, a vast inheritance given to him from his father. And before, as, just as he was entering the ministry, he felt the Lord speak to him about the rich young ruler. And the Lord kind of said to him, if you want to follow me, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything and follow me. And so he felt from the Lord that basically he had to give it away. And so he started writing checks, right? 5,000 here, 1,000 there. And, you know, 1,000 back the day was a lot of money. That This is British pounds. Uh, but he, he actually helped found uh, Moody Bible Institute. He, helped, he gave to George Mueller in Bristol and so forth. And he invested in these things till he had nothing left. And after that, he came to the Lord and said, Lord, I don't have anything now. Lord, I want to follow you. And so he just was led by the Lord in the different missionary activities, and he became very successful. And in fact, I just looking it up, his organization is still endures to this day, and they're going in, into many nations around the world. Now, God is not necessarily asking us to give on that scale. Right? I don't think there's any one of us here in that category, you know. But he's still asking. He's still asking, "Will you give me your heart?" Will you give me your, your, your life? Will you follow me? Even as we heard this morning, will you take up your cross and follow me? And it's the idea that there's a cost we pay in our heart so that we value the call, so that we are consecrated to him. Now, we mentioned a few Sundays ago about Ezra. He was a man who was consecrated. Ezra 7 and verse 10, it says that he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. His heart was fixed. He had set himself in a pathway. Lord, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to follow you no matter what, no matter where. I mean, he had to leave his, it must have been a pretty nice position in, in Babylon and in Persia where he was serving the king. And he went out to the, the broken down, crumbled city but he went there with a mission to build. But it says he prepared his heart. Basically, he determined, I'm going to say yes to whatever God asks me. Lord, lead me because I say yes. 
You know, God is calling us into that pathway of consecration, of doing his will. And so if we've, as we've been considering Elijah, you know, the one who's been used by God to raise up the next generation, he imparted his mantle, what God had done in, in his life into, into Elijah. And so God is looking for fathers and mothers who will do the same, who will invest themselves in doing his will to affect the next generation, to affect others to come unto him. Now, the next generation doesn't have to be teenagers. They can be, you know, whatever age because they're born again into, the, into his kingdom and need to be taught and raised up in the ways of God. But to do that, we have to be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, people who are rooted in his truth and bearing the fruit of his truth. As we saw in Elisha, following God requires being men and women under authority, the authority of his spirit, allowing him to work in our lives where he brings us into that place of rest. Lord, not my will. Lord, I I want to only do your will. Bring me to that place. You know, that's my prayer so often. Lord, just bring me to that place of rest where I won't be struggling about my will anymore. Or my will can just go away, die, so that, Lord, I can rest and delight to be like David. Lord, I delight to do your will. He came into a place of rest. It wasn't just restful. It was was delightful. It was a joy to do the will of God. And God so longs to bring us to that place. But what is it going to take? Consecration. Lord, I'm willing to do what it takes. Lord, I, I want your will to be done. You know, and I just got this phrase, the, the cost is worth the call. The cost is worth the call. Where we determine, Lord, it's worth it. Lord, I'm just, I'm saying yes right now. And when you ask me to do something and following you, I'm just going to believe that I'm going to still say yes and you're going to give me grace to do it, right? We don't say yes boastfully. You know, we don't, we don't do it like Peter. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. Oh, really? He kind of did it in his own. That was a, that was a yes in, in my own strength. But as we say yes, realizing, Lord, I can't do it. I'm saying yes, but you're still going to give me the strength to do it as I cry out for grace and rely upon you. But Lord, I want to be one who has prepared my heart to seek you, to follow you no matter the cost. Now, when we say that, we got to get be prepared for God to put his finger <laughs> on different areas of our life, sometimes more than one finger at once, right? <laughs> sometimes two or three. But when when we yield that to him, our our own insignificant little things that sometimes we value and we trade them. Okay, Lord, I'll give up this thing that I value. And I'll give it to you. He exchanges it for something so much better. Empowerment, peace, joy, righteousness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He wants to bring that exchange. But I just feel this, the thought this morning of a fresh consecration, a fresh consecration. And, you know, maybe Pastor Jason can come and he's going to lead us in a song and then I'm going to come back and pray and and, but I, I would encourage you that don't just respond and say, yes, Lord, I'm, I'm going to do it because 
it, this is saying, Lord, I'm inviting you into your life to put some, your finger on some things, to pay a cost. Who knows what the cost is? You know, sometimes God has asked me to ask things of me that I didn't even think about. And he said, okay, this thing. Lord, why is that important to you? He doesn't usually tell me. He just says, do this for me. But as we surrender, it releases power. It brings us into a new place of victory and strength to follow him. Pastor Jason, come and lead us.